This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with the author and Christian theologian Brian McLaren. I spoke with him on August 10, 2013 at the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina. You can download the MP3 of that produced show with Brian McLaren at onbeing.org. You. Okay. Yes, that's right. Okay, we were just instructed to speak to everyone back in the shade, which is where I would be if I were out there. <laughs> well, just going to give a little introduction. As you know, um, if you've been coming to some of the interviews I've been doing, we're going to turn these into radio shows, and there are some radio moments. And we may or may not use these introductions, but we do them to, just because we have production in mind. Brian McLaren is one of the original articulators of the notion of emergent Christianity, the emerging church. Among other things, he said... This invi- he, among other things, he said he envisions a community where diversity no longer means division. Time magazine has called Brian McLaren one of the country's most influential evangelicals. A former college English teacher and pastor, he's best known for his books that range from fiction to best-selling spiritual guides, from a new kind of Christian to naked spirituality. He's also the author, more recently, of Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? Christian Identity in a Multi-Faith World. So I told Natalie, uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber yesterday that I had been following her for years, and she didn't really take it very well. So <laughs> I'm not going to say that to you, but I've been, let's say this. I've been appreciatively aware of your work Longer than I've even been aware of Nadia's work. Well, uh, the the same is true uh, in reverse. And and it seems fitting somehow that we finally cross paths here at Wild Goose. Exactly right. It's great. Because, you know, it's kind of a mysterious, there's no science to how we, I mean, I've known I would interview at some point, and it just had to wait for the moment to be right, Mm -hmm. and this was clearly it. So, you know, I'd like to start by just uh, hearing a little bit about the religious and spiritual background of your childhood. You've, yes. you've described yourself as growing up in hardcore church. Yes. Well, I grew up in a little Protestant group called the Plymouth Brethren. Oh, you did? Uh, which is the... Uh, <laughs> both of the Plymouth Brethren in the United States are here. <laughs> Surely there were four or five, though, back when you were growing up. That's right. And Garrison Keillor is probably the the best known of them. When he talks about the sanctified brethren, uh, that's that's my people. Uh, And then I I had a wonderful upbringing. You know, people, there's an awful lot of ugly things about fundamentalism, but fundamentalism wasn't as ugly uh, 50 years ago as it is Hmm. now. And uh, I, there was a lot of love, and I really learned the Bible, and uh, you know, great, a lot of great experiences. Uh, but uh, I, I kind of reached my, uh, my turning point as a young fundamentalist. I think I was in seventh grade, and my Sunday school teacher said, you have to choose, you either can believe in God or evolution. And I remember at that age, I thought evolution was absolutely magnificent. Because you were also kind of a science geek in school, I, right? I was the biggest science geek. I loved, I still am an outdoors guy. Like my, uh, my passion now, this is so embarrassing, but my passion is dragonflies. I'm learning the names of dragonflies. And I, I just love all facets of the outdoors. And 
so that was my, my first problem was science, and my second problem was rock and roll. <laughs> those, those don't fit well with uh, fundamentalist uh, upbringing. And so I was kind of on my way out of this whole thing. And then I encountered the Jesus movement in the early 70s. And I had a, I'm one of those people that had a kind of dramatic conversion through the Jesus movement. A dramatic conversion to, back to Christianity, but a different kind of Christianity? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think what happened is what had been a system of belief uh, in my, uh, that I'd inherited became a real experience. And I really had a very profound uh, experience of the love of God. And, and, uh, and I think that has been formative for me because what brought me back into the Christian kind of fold was this experience of being loved. And that was at the core of it. And in some ways, I had to live with the tension of this primary experience of being loved together with an awful lot of other religious static that wasn't quite uh, in sync with love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you originally, um, you, you, you uh, delved into your love of literature and you became yes. a college English teacher. And as I read you, I sense that your love of literature actually is very much present in yeah. how you approach the Bible and theology. In fact, it's funny you say that, uh, Krista, because here I grew up with this fundamentalist background where you really learn the Bible. I mean, I memorize lots and lots of the Bible. You tend to only memorize certain verses. You have yeah. to carefully avoid the ones before them and after them. I, I grew up in that place, too. Yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, So I had this knowledge of the Bible. But when I was in, in college and graduate school studying literature, especially when I encountered the amazing work of Walker Percy, hmm. uh, I, I, I realized that if I were to read the Bible literarily as opposed to literally, it would be a completely different experience. So in many ways, all of my work in recent years has been, uh, in many ways, is the fruit of this fusion of reading the Bible literarily and then my background exposure to the Bible as a fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. And so... How did you walk into ministry then? How did that happen? Well, I, I, was, uh, I was teaching at the uh, University of Maryland, and uh, my wife and I had a little apartment off campus. And I kept inviting people over for dinner. And my wife said, look, uh, you know, she was a high school teacher, and my schedule was a little more flexible. And she'd come home and find five people there. And she'd say, listen, we've got to get more organized about this. So if you want to invite people over, invite them on Thursday night, you know. So we started with these little Thursday night dinners. And uh, one thing led to another. That became a little fellowship. And, uh, and that went through a few permutations, but ended up uh, uh, another couple joined my wife and me. And we said, hey, this is kind of a little church. Let's hmm. see what, what, what could happen. But you didn't call it a house church, did you? You called it a dinner group. I've, I've, I mean, it, start, it really started as uh, dinner. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then your sense of calling grew out of that? It was, it was a bit messy uh, because I loved teaching, and I was lucky enough to have a job. There were a lot more English majors back then than there were uh, jobs. Uh, but I, I, uh, I had started attending an Episcopal church. I actually began the process of going to the Episcopal seminary. And I just got cold feet at the last minute. I think I realized some sense of my calling was that if I became a traditional priest or pastor, 
I would be in the religious world. And I wasn't that attracted to the religious world. I was in this situation of loving the spiritual life, loving talking about the Bible, loving talking about mission and purpose and so on, uh, but not, not that thrilled about the religious life, whether it was the, the fundamentalist form of religion or the more liturgical high church forms of religion. And so it wasn't uh, this wonderful aha moment. It was more, well, I can't do that, and I can't do that, and I can't do that. And then when this fellowship grew to a certain size, that became my, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. So, okay, so what years are we talking here? Uh, we're talking, uh, this little fellowship formed in 1982, and I left teaching in 1986. Okay. You know, you've written about... Um well, the, 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 the way religion re-entered, um, and especially evangelical Christianity, re-entered American public life in the 80s and 90s, yeah. in that, during that time, and yeah. then, and then in, in the 90s in a big way. Um, and I can't remember which book or where you wrote about this, but, you know, I, I, I really feel like there's, there's a trauma yeah. from that time yes. for a lot of Christians oh. that's, still, that's still there, that's still present. Um, and and that's all, those are also years in which I came back to the States and went to seminary and then had this idea to start a radio show because surely we could talk about this subject in a more meaningful way because what had happened was that it's not only that really Falwell and Robertson were in a class on their own, that they presented themselves um, with such great sound bites. Yeah. But journalists, who I also give a lot of credit for this trauma to, you know, um, gave them this incredible yes. uh, legitimacy and this incredible platform. And really, they were set up to speak not just for evangelical Christianity yeah. or fundamental, fundamentalist Christianity, which was Falwell's tradition, but all Christians, not just all Christians, but who religious people are, what yeah. they sound like, and what they care about. Yeah. And you wrote honestly, and I think this is an experience a lot of people had who weren't where they were, yes. that you became part of that silent majority that was yes. so embarrassed that didn't associate with that, didn't want, yeah. to be, um, in, uh, didn't want to be associated with it. But instead, you know, the really damaging thing that happened is everybody else got so quiet. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, that's a part of history that I think we should pay more attention to. Uh, I remember at the end of the Jesus movement, it would have been 1978, 1979, there were still Jesus papers out, you know, that were being disseminated. And there was an article in one of them that said all of these Californians were supporting Ronald Reagan to go from being governor to being president. And this was reported as this wonderful thing. And I just remember thinking, this must be a typo. Ronald Reagan? And for me, my exposure to the Jesus movement had been this exposure to a revolutionary, radical figure who was about peace and love and reconciliation and the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And Ronald Reagan didn't match with that. And what happened in the 90s, I mean, it's a complicated thing. And I'm sure the whole story will someday be told when a lot of the key players decide to tell what is still unknown. Yeah. But however it happened, watching the evangelical community become this mouthpiece for a certain form of republicanism, that, and the irony of this is, not only did that alliance change evangelicalism, it changed republicanism, uh, I think, for the worse. And uh, so I, I, and I, I think I just withdrew 
to say, let's have a good church. I tried to avoid politics. Uh, I tried to avoid anything that would get me even in the same ballpark with that kind of strident religiosity. So, so where in that story that, as you say, we're all, you know, a lot of people are still going to have to make sense of, where does emergent church come in? Where does the idea, that language, and yeah. you, you're not the only person who was thinking about it. You really are a key person who started to give voice to that. So, so where does sure. that come into that well, picture? I, I think there, I can tell you about my personal experience and then explain how that maybe links up with other people's experience. Uh, I, I was uh, in, in around 1990, 1991, I had more and more people coming to my church who were unchurched, and they were what we might today call postmodern people. Uh, and they were looking for God, and they felt like I maybe had faith and some amount of a brain, and I, they, they liked the church. And they would come to me with their questions. And I would listen to their questions, and I would give them the best answers I'd been taught, answers from people like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and others. And I remember many times having this feeling. They would leave the office, and I would think, I hope they didn't buy that, because... <laughs> I don't really buy that. That, Their question was better than my answer. And uh, little by little, their questions became my questions, Hmm. and my answers did not become their answers. So they had a big influence on me to say, I need to be more honest about these, some of these questions that are coming up. And uh, and I thought I was the only person in this mess, Uh, and it was not an easy couple of years. The first book that I wrote, uh, it was called Church on the Other Side, uh, in some ways, detailed my journey uh, in this. And I remember thinking, when this book comes out, I will not have any friends. Uh, but when the book came out, uh, it turns out all these other people said, hey, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one. So it turns out there was a lot of this questioning behind the scenes. And people just needed a few people to raise a flag and say, it's safe to talk here. And they would flock into that space where it was safe to be honest. So... So what does the phrase emerging church mean for you? Well, there were a couple of things going on. You know, we were using the word postmodern a lot, and and that's such a contested word. Well, it is, but you still use it. So, I mean, also, what does it mean when you use the term (laughs) postmodern? Well, if if you think of it like this, the modern era is the era of the conquistadors. It's the era when the whole world is colonized by a form of Christianity its southern European form was Catholic. Its northern European form was uh, Protestant. But it was a European form of Christianity that assumed that believing in Jesus gave you the right to steal everybody's land, either make them your slaves or put them on reservations. And when, when you look back and say, our religion has fused and become the chaplaincy for these imperial projects, colonial projects, when you start paying attention to that, you either have to leave your Christianity or you have to become savvy about what happened to it. So what I would say in that way, postmodern is postcolonial, and then that gets intensified through the Holocaust. I think postmodern is postcolonial and post-Holocaust because the Holocaust also forces Christians to say, how did we create the conditions where six million Jews could be exterminated? And of course, right around those... In post- a Christian country. In a Christian country. Yeah. And, and after those years of, the, of World War II, then that's when people start paying attention. Wow, we did it to women, too. Wow, we did it to the Native Americans, too. Wow, we're killing the environment, too. And when you have second thoughts about the entire civilization and religious justification for that civilization, 
uh, you have second thoughts about modernity at that moment. That, to me, that's the broadest and best def- definition of postmodernity. Mm-hmm. So when something is emerging in the aftermath of modernity, uh, whatever that emerging thing is, we, we felt like we were a part of it. We didn't have the five-point plan. We didn't have it all figured out. But we said, something is happening here. We know we're leaving something behind. For those of us who are involved in these conversations, we're Christians. We're committed to Jesus. We love God. We want to stay with that. But we're willing to really go through a kind of virus scan and figure out what hmm. really ought to be here and what ought not be here. But you didn't use the term virus scan back then. Though, <laughs> no, did we didn't. That's right. <laughs> um, but you know something that's really intriguing to me about when Christians use the term postmodern, yes. when emerging church people use the term postmodern, um, it was also a move all the way back to the fourth century. Yes. Or the second century. Yes. It, it, it was a move back to recover yes. ancient roots. Yes. Um, very interesting. Kind of paradoxical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in, in one way, it makes perfect sense because one of, the th- one of the tools that Europeans used to justify enslaving and stealing the lands uh, and, and the free labor and resources of everybody else was to say, you all have a story. We have a system. You all have stories that are situated. We have a system that's universal and absolute. And... Uh, and when you are a Christian who, and all of your Christian faith, for Protestants it happened through, from, all the way from the Reformation up to the 20th century in both liberal and conservative forms. They were two versions of the same thing. In Catholicism, Catholics sort of had a chance to reboot at the Council of Trent and then at Vatican II, grappling with these issues. When you see there's something wrong with this whole modern project, you realize, you know what, we Christians, we have a story too. And in fact, we're probably at our worst when we present our faith as a system rather than as a story. Mm. When you do that, you say, well, how can we rediscover our faith? Let's go back and look at our faith before it was reduced to a system, before it was reduced to a system of of abstractions and beliefs. How can we rediscover our faith as as a series of stories and as a series of encounters? And so for that reason, a lot of us, for example, who are very... Protestant and sort of doctrinaire in our thinking, we rediscovered the sacraments because right. liturgy and sacrament, right. different kind of encounter. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and you could almost say, in a sense, for Protestants, that was a move back into history, right? Or yeah, yeah it was reaching back into history. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and, I, and then you, weird things happen. Like you then, I think we also started to realize that this modern phenomenon of the, colon, the, the, the Christian colonization of the world really had roots back to Constantine when the Christian faith made its first, uh, had its first affair with empire. And uh, when you go back then, something really interesting happens because you look at the monastic movements as an attempt to have a form of Christianity that is not part of the, this religious, industrial uh, empire, you know. Uh, right, well, the, the monastic movements were spiritual renewal movements, right? They were the early, you know, the it, early emerging church. Well, when you think about it like this, I mean, this, probably, this comparison probably has never made before and maybe never should again, but, you know, when you think of the 60s and 70s and all the hippies who want to get back to nature, I mean, in a way, the monastics were saying, 
let's get out of this whole civilization that's built around weapons and raising children to be, raising boys to be soldiers. And this whole militarized fusion of Christianity, the only way we can rediscover our faith is to get back out in the country, get away from the cities. Now, look, I, I, I don't think that's the whole solution, but I think it's a very valid response when you are saying, if, if we're going to save our faith, we have to find a way to extract it. And I'll tell you, that still keeps me up at night because I think we're very early in this rethinking process. And uh, uh, we, we have a lot of deep questions that still have to be asked about how we practice a faith that is not just either a nice diversion while the empire rages on or is actually a chaplaincy to the continuation of this, this uh, juggernaut that is affecting people and is affecting the environment and is affecting the future. Oh. And, and in this span of decades... Um, I mean, those, those were the Cold War days, right? That was a different world. Yeah. It was pre-internet, pre-9-11, yes. pre-fall of the Soviet Union. And now, um, you know, now we have what Phyllis Tickle calls the great emergence, which is, is you know, it's the entire, all of our civilizations yeah. in flux. Yes. Um, so how does that change the project? I mean, yeah. how has your imagination about that evolved? I mean, you've, you know, there's, here's a sentence of yours. Christianity is in trouble and pregnant with possibilities. Christianity churches now, like every institution we have, scientific, medical, political, social, is not going to look the same way in 50 years as it does now. Yes. Um, so it's in trouble in a different yes. way. And so I wonder, you know, flesh out what that means for you right now, Christianity being in trouble and also pregnant with possibilities. So if we take the Catholic wing of the church, we have a Catholic structure that is way more concerned about keeping women out of the priesthood than it is that we're destroying the planet through a carbon-based economy. Uh, We have an evangelical community that has the audacity to blame gay people for destroying heterosexual marriage. I mean, anyone who says that should be laughed off the stage. It's ridiculous. Uh, Heterosexuals are destroying heterosexual marriage just fine without help from from gay folks. Uh, And and this becomes what someone calls a weapon of mass distraction. Let's get everybody worried about the gays and we won't ever talk about nuclear weapons. We won't ever talk about the growing gap between rich and poor. We won't ever talk about how we're living in a completely unsustainable economy. Now, as soon as I say that, people will say, yeah, what are your answers to it? You know, I don't have easy answers to these things. But one thing I know is if we don't keep grappling with the problem, those answers will never appear. And so what that has made me want to do is go back to my sources. I want to go back to Genesis to Revelation. I want to go back to especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Are there resources there that could help us deal with this constellation of problems? And I also am I'm really, aware, I'm really aware of how media shapes our perception yeah. of these things. And, and that I think there are very few, actually, Catholics or evangelicals who 
absolutely are on that end of things yes. as you described? Yes. There are a lot of people. I also don't know that there's really a center. Yes. But there are a lot of people who are left of center or right of center and not at the yes. extreme ends who also don't know how to be in that conversation, yes. want to be having that conversation too with people who see things differently than them. And also, you know, and, and they have some ground they stand on and some yeah. convictions, but they also have a lot of open questions they realize they share with others. Is that also the emerging church? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, here's what, what you're describing, it seems to me, is a phenomenally unstable status quo. When so many people think a whole lot of things privately that they can't say publicly. Or they'll say them publicly, even though they're in, in contrast with what the religious organizations to which they belong uh, say. So we live with all of these conflicts. And sometimes we're, we keep them secret, and sometimes we let them be open. But when you have that amount, well, Parker Palmer says this beautifully. He says that we live divided lives, where we, our internal reality says one thing, and publicly we say another. And he says, in that way, we are complicit in our own diminishment. Hmm. And when people say, I will not be divided anymore, I will at least try to speak the truth, or I'll ask the question that needs to be asked, that further destabilizes the situation. Where it will lead is anybody's guess. Uh, and of course, when all this happens in times of instability, growing numbers of people are afraid that the institutions will fail. And here's where a lot of people are surprised. I am a pro-institution guy. I think institutions are tremendously important. Uh, I just think institutions constantly need movements knocking at the door to challenge them to take the next step forward. And uh, this, to me, is what, part of what's emerging, I think, is not an anti-institutional movement, but a movement of people who want to try to articulate some next steps forward. And so one of the things you also write about a lot, and, and it, it, it can be kind of insider language that I think mm. is worth opening up, is how the Western imagination about Christianity is very much framed in Greco-Roman terms, yes. that the Bible itself was framed in those terms, much of it. Yes. Um, and, you know, you use words like anxiety and paranoia yes. <laughs> in terms of what that injected into the Western imagination, the yes. Western uh, life in this faith. Yes. So just open that up. So what's the alternative? And I think this gets at your, your idea of divisions that... One wants to break open. Yes. You, you know, you, you might say that the, one of the most important Bible stories for our time is the story of the Tower of Babel, which says that our great dream, when we live in a world of conflict, maybe we could have peace if we would all be the same. If we'd all speak the same language, if we all had the same government, we could finally make everybody the same. And in that story, with all of its primitive and, and you know, powerful primal imagery, in a strange way, God votes against sameness and God votes for diversity. Uh, and you could say that, that our world is pretty well uh, divided between the people who think that difference is dangerous and same is safe on the one side, and people who say, no, there is a way to have difference and harmony. There is a way to have diversity and unity. And this, to me, is one of our great challenges. And I think those of us who are Christians, my goodness sakes, this is one of the, you know, the most orthodox Christian teachings of all is the doctrine of, of the Trinity, which dares to say that unity and diversity are not 
enemies, they are at the core of the most profound reality of the universe. That's a pretty amazing claim. Yeah. You know, diversity is one of many good words that it's like we've overused yeah. it and, and sup- made it superficial. Yes. I always, I'm always wondering, you know, I'm always grasping for what's another word. Bes- yes. And, and, and when, you, when you really see diversity, and I mean, I'll tell you one time I really saw diversity was at the Azusa Street Revival. It's yes. centennial. Yes. In, in Los Angeles a few years yes. ago. Diversity was way too small a word. Yes. But that collection, that yes. breadth of humanity. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about it? another well, no, word for I, diversity? I, 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 um, well, I'll tell you the word that to me captures what we need is ecosystem. It's like the e- difference. We need an ecosystem. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in a monoculture, you've got all this acres and acres of corn spreading across Iowa. Uh, but in an ecosystem, which we're somewhat surrounded by here, yes. we have probably 10 different kinds of trees just that we can see here. And, of course, we'd have all different kinds of insects. And, and you know, it's, it's an amazing diversity. And all different kinds of people. <laughs> and, and all different kinds of people. Yeah, yeah. So that idea that uh, difference is, is mutually beneficial. It's part it, of it, the vitality. Yes. Yeah. But you're right. The word diversity ends up being a code word like tolerance. right. Yeah, and, yeah. and what we need is something way deeper than those kind of uh, tame concepts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like that. So you've said that there's a renaissance underway regarding our understanding of Jesus. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, what an amazing time to be alive. So I, I, I'm sure I can't be exhaustive in this, but I'll just give you a couple that quickly come to mind. So 100 years ago... Uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, this German Baptist pastor, Walter Rauschenbusch goes back and reads the Gospels and realizes, wow, Jesus had this message called the kingdom of God. (laughs) And for so many Christians, kingdom of God had been reduced to going to heaven after you die. And he made this slight observation that in the Lord's Prayer, it says, may your kingdom come, may your will be done down here on earth. In other words, the direction of the Bible was downward, not upward. I mean, that changes the world. Uh, uh, Martin Martin Luther King Jr. got a hold of that. Others got a hold of that. That was one of the most transformative ideas in my life. I grew up in the church all my life, and it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I realized that kingdom of God was not going to heaven after you die. Oh, my goodness. Then you add to that the insights of liberation theology from Latin America and places in Africa, this obvious, obvious discovery that the primary biblical narrative is Exodus, that when God made a decision to support slaves, not slave owners, that's one of the most radical ideas in the world. And uh, uh, my goodness sakes, talk about the 1% and the 99%, that in a sense, God is on the side of the 99%. That's just a stunning revelation. It has powerful implications for how we read the whole Bible. For example, when you read the book of Exodus, that's where the word salvation gains meaning. And salvation means essentially liberation. So take the insights from the social gospel movement. Take the insights from the liberation theology movement. Add to that the insights of people, for example, who are investigating the work of Rene Girard and and the whole mimetic theory approach that's paying attention to the power of imitation and the, and, uh, and the role of scapegoating. And, and then you start noticing this whole theme in the Bible and in Jesus' life about violence. 
I mean, those are just three, and there are probably another half a dozen that you could quickly bring to bear to say all of these together, when you go back and read the Gospels, it just looks different. One of my mentors said to me, what you focus on determines what you miss. And I was taught to read every verse in the Bible to find out who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. But when you start noticing other themes, you start looking for other themes, the Bible becomes a different book. And I think Jesus becomes a very different person, and the Christian faith can become a very different faith. And what's interesting to me, too, is that this renaissance in the understanding of Jesus is not um, restricted to... Christians, Yes. Or to inside the church. Yes. I mean, so I see this in a few different ways. And one would be uh, this category that we've, that's been defined by Pew Opinion Polls, you know, mm-hmm. the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Yes. A very, very tiny percentage of whom describe themselves as atheist. Yes. Um, but, but who describe themselves as n- not belonging to an organized yes. religion. But I, I sense that the person of Jesus is very powerful and compelling. Yes. I, I, boy, I experienced this. Uh, when I am in, in conversation with my Muslim friends, my Jewish friends. Right. And then there's that. It's beyond the, it's also out. It's also within, among people with a different, a very strong, different religious identity. In fact, it, it works on several levels. On, on one level, if we're, if we say, Hey, let's talk about Jesus. We end up in fascinating discussions, very different than let's talk about Christianity. Hmm. Um, but, What's interesting is among my Muslim friends, they, they say, we're trying to rediscover what Islam is. We'd like to go back and actually pay attention to what Muhammad said and did and allow ourselves to understand Muhammad in his native historical context. Uh, and that's very much what, what we're trying to do with Jesus, put Jesus back in the context of first century Judaism, yeah. Second Temple Judaism, as it's often called. And, and, you know, something very interesting happens among my Buddhist friends. They they say we're going through a similar process. And it's as if we're at this moment when the structures of religion that have evolved for very good reasons, and you don't have to be dismissive or, or judgmental or whatever, for very good reasons they've taken the past they've taken. But when those evolved forms stop working so well, then it becomes a natural time to say, well, let's go back and take a fresh look. I'm not so naive as to think, anybody comes along and finally gets it right. You know, if I hear somebody says they finally gotten it right, I want to run in the other direction. But I don't think we ought to be so cynical as to say there's no value in looking back and trying to get a fresh vision. Mm-hmm. You know, I can just say when I did that, I didn't know what the outcome would be. But I'll tell you, uh, the, the amount of hope that I feel now sincerely is so great by doing that. Say a little bit more. Give a concrete well, example of what you mean. Okay. Look, since September 11, 2001, we all know that religious hostility is one of the greatest threats to human survival. You know, the likelihood is our, our best way to destroy ourselves in the short run is through a nuclear weapon. And the best way to destroy ourselves in the long run is through the carbon-based economy. So we have these two ways to destroy ourselves. And... We can find Bible verses to justify bombing people, and we can find Bible verses to justify exploiting the planet. And guess what? I think Muslims could find some Quranic support for either of those and and all the rest. 
But when we're in this moment where we say the future of the planet depends on us finding a way to reapproach our and rediscover our ancient texts to offer us wisdom and direction going ahead, I, it just feels like a new moment to me. And that uh, is very helpful. And with Jesus, when you do this in regards to Jesus, well, just to, one example. Jesus said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If, if we dared every preacher to preach on that for a month, uh, I think that a whole lot of people would decide, I don't want to be a Christian anymore because it goes against my true God. A friend of mine said, we write in God we trust on the God in which we really trust. And because that message that a person's life is not about the abundance of his possessions, that is the, that's, that's throwing down the gauntlet to our entire, uh, our entire economy. And, and you've really been delving into this matter of the Christian relationship to religious others. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a there's a really profound shift there that I mm-hmm. in the world and in yeah. that I, I almost feel like it's one of these things that every once in a while we should just step back and acknowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, you married a Catholic woman, mm-hmm. which I bet was a really I mean a Protestant Catholic marriage in the '60s '70s still was an interfaith marriage, right? Yeah. yeah. In the world you came from. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my wife's world too. My mother-in-law said to me, "Well, if you couldn't be Italian." At least you were smart enough to marry an Italian. Uh, but, you know, there was that sort of thing that... You had to make an excuse. I mean, I grew up in the 1960s and 70s yeah. learning that, you know, Southern Baptist Methodists were going to hell. I mean, it's not just yes. uh, Muslims who might have yes, a problem. No, that's right. Um, and Plymouth Brethren weren't sure about the Southern Baptists. And so. weren't sure. No, of course not. Um, but this was serious, serious stuff. Yes, that's right. And there's been a huge shift. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, and what's interesting, so, so let's say even in the 1980s, I was uh, involved with an ecumenical organization. There's another adjective, ecumenical, yes. just like interfaith. They're just deadly when the stuff itself <laughs> is really fascinating. But I was with this ecumenical where there was a very uh, wonderful, thoughtful profound discussion on the board about whether they should extend um, into interfaith dialogue as well as ecumenical dialogue. And when I look back on that, I think that discussion would never take place anymore. There's no option. There's a a reality and a recognition that we share the world with different others, different religious others. And, And this is what I think you're delving into now. This question of the Christian relationship to religious others is a matter for Christian theology. It's not yes. a separate thing over here. Yes. And, and it's a whole new ballgame when the Christian faith is separated from an empire that needs it to baptize its wars. Uh, and this is one of our big challenges. A different kind of interfaith dialogue happens when you're, you're not the defender of a military, uh, a, a military player. But... What, one of the things that amazed me when I, I wrote this book recently was that, you, you, again, you, you don't notice things because you've been trained not to notice them. But you think about Moses, the story of Moses. Here is the, the child of a Jewish couple living under an oppressive regime he, who wants to kill him. He gets adopted by that oppressive regime. So he grows up with a dual identity, genetically part of the oppressed and culturally part of the oppressors. 
when he is, comes of age and has to choose sides, he's rejected by both ends up having to leave and becomes a refugee in another culture. He marries a woman of another religion whose father is a priest of that religion. I mean, that's a pretty interesting guy, a pretty conflicted religious identity. 21st century guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's yeah. just, it could be, we could tell the same story today. Mm-hmm. You think about the story even of Abraham who leaves an empire uh, with its own panoply of gods. And he goes, his whole life is engaging with people of different religions. So this crazy idea that I think is, has to do with our European history, uh, this crazy idea that, that mono-religious cultures are normal is certainly foreign to the Bible. Same with Muhammad. You know, Muhammad grows up in a, a multi-religious Arabian peninsula. Uh, and Muhammad is, has associates and friends who are Orthodox, Roman, Catholic Christians, and who are heretical Christians and different kinds of Jews. So all of our religious backgrounds have this great heritage of interfaith relations that we have forgotten and, or that have been marginalized. And if we rediscover them, you know, that's why I sort of playfully worked with that title, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? You just imagine they would treat each other way better than their followers do. <laughs> I mean, and another big shift that you have participated in also on a very personal level is you um, took part in the marriage of your son to another man. Yes. And, and you've been pretty open about that being, uh, that, that being a journey you were on. Yes. Theologically. So yes. talk about that. Because, because that's a journey that the culture is on and yes, that the church really is on. It's really true. Uh, oh, I mean, Krista, we could talk so much about that because uh, it's such a painful issue for, uh, on so many levels for people. But, you know, growing up, as I did, uh, in a fundamentalist context, uh, a certain way of interpreting the Bible was the bedrock of everything we did. And by the way, not just theoretically, uh, our, our social structure of our church, we gave power to the people who upheld the traditional interpretation of the Bible. So to have a different interpretation is to stand up against the power structures of your local congregation. So, so much was invested, more than we realized, in our traditional interpretations. And it's so ironic for Protestants like myself, we made so much about following the Bible, but we didn't even realize that there was a lot of fine print. It was following our interpretation of the Bible. Uh, and, um, uh, And now that is under so much pressure because... Uh, let's say that somewhere between 3 and 9% of people are gay. Let's say 6%. Well, if you have 6% of people are gay, and it's, let's say that seems to be pretty true across cultures, and we could argue, is it 5 or 7, whatever. Let's just take, take 6. Well, that's 6%. If that person has two parents, that's another 12%. So now we're up to 18%. If that person has a sibling, now we're up to 24%. Wow, pretty soon we've got half the population who's the grandparent or the sibling of a gay person. And when they start coming out, now all this really becomes very intense. Ironically, we have had this in our past, and we have amnesia. White people used to do the same thing about black people. I I know I I look uh, 67, but I'm 57. 
And when I was a boy, I remember the Sunday school class where my Sunday school teachers told us it was wrong for us as white people to date black people because we might fall in love and get married. And there was something called the curse of Ham. It wasn't about kosher foods. It was the, now it's called the curse of Canaan. But it was a verse from Genesis that had been used for centuries against interracial marriage and to justify racism and slavery. Uh, so we have this sort of thing in the past. And when white people only were around white people, they could maintain this biblical interpretation that relegated all people of color to an inferior status. But once you listen to people, you get to know them, that breaks down, and that's happening again. I think the underreported part of this, though, is and the pain that people feel. Uh, a friend of mine uh, said it to me. His son came out, and in tears he said to me, if I accept my son, I reject my father. And if I side with my father, I reject my son. And uh, that's where people live. I was with a gay man the other day. He told me when he came out, his mother said to his siblings, if you ever speak to your brother again, I will have nothing to do with you. And at her funeral, he went to the funeral, and four of his five siblings came up to him and said, we're really sorry. We didn't want to cut you out of our lives, but we had to. Mom made us. And, I mean, this is the life. These are the pains that people go through, the choices that people make. What kind of reaction have you had within um, the Christian world, within the evangelical community and beyond? Have you had to... Being so, being open about this, yeah. and also about your interfaith. I mean, you're you know you're touching on nerves. Yeah. You're touching on um, points of change yeah. and points of fear in both of those places. Well, well you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church has a very clear process for excommunication. The Evangelical Church is more complicated, and I think I had already been excommunicated before this happened, so I didn't really have a lot of blowback about this. I, I'll tell you where one of the places I. I experienced a lot of this was when I wrote a book called Generous Orthodoxy. And in that book, I just said something nice about the Buddha. Uh, I, may, I may, might have said something nice about Muhammad. And that's, you know, I realized, oh, I'm, I'm in the process of being excommunicated. So, you know, that, that, that didn't happen uh, in regard to uh, the issue of homosexuality. But uh, what has happened, people would be surprised how many evangelical leaders emailed me or called me and said, I can't say this in public, but I think you did the right thing. And I, I appreciate what you did. And I received a lot of very heartfelt, private comments. You know, mm-hmm. from people, people would be surprised who I heard from. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I'm outdoors at the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina, today with theologian and author Brian McLaren. Um... I'm going to open this up for questions in just a minute. I'm just asking one more question. So I, I, I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you if you still identify as, if you identify as evangelical, and if you identify as progressive. Yeah. I, I have to say, I also find, you know, these are also labels that are. Yeah, they're really problematic. They're problematic. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I come from an evangelical background, and what I learned in my evangelical background is that. The Bible's really important, and commitment to Jesus matters, and Jesus has good news for the whole world. I still believe those things. Uh, So I'm happy to still say that I think I'm being true to my, I think I'm being true to my tradition. You know, a Catholic friend of mine told me recently that 
he heard from one of his superiors that uh, the Holy Spirit has moved us on now. We don't need Jesus anymore. We've moved on to new teachings and talked about things like canon law and so on. Uh, I, I was shocked to hear that, and uh, I believe my friend who told me this. But something similar happens in, in the evangelical world. In a strange way, there's this thing called conservatism. And conservatism becomes this new philosophy. And Jesus is important to the degree he agrees with conservatism. In, in that way, I think I'm more evangelical than my, a lot of my evangelical friends because I actually am still, I think, more committed to, to uh, Jesus than to, uh, you know, I hope, an ideology, whether conservative or liberal or whatever. But, but don't you think progressive can be a trap as well? Yeah. I mean, if the word, see, if the word evangelical means I'm committed to evangel, good news, it means one thing. But if it means association with a certain cultural phenomenon, it means something very different. And the same with the word progressive. If it means I'm interested in making progress, we still have a long way to go, that has one meaning. And this is so hard. I, I, am, I bet I'm in a conversation two or three times a month where people say, what do we call this thing? You yeah, know? Yeah. And it really gets interesting. I, I, was inv- I got a phone call seven or eight years ago. I was still a pastor from a rabbi. He said, I represent a group of uh, uh, several dozen rabbis who've read all your books, which really impressed me. I thought, my wife hasn't read all my books. (laughs) And uh, they said, we'd like to meet with you. So I met with some of these rabbis. They're having the same problem. If If you're a Jew who really thinks that what's being done to Palestinians is wrong in the name of your religion, it's very, very hard to be a Jew who's faithful to the prophetic tradition. And, you know, you use the word Jew and other people then think, oh, you hate Palestinians, you know. Uh, And so we're all struggling with this. I I know Muslims are struggling with this, too. And, you know, that's why I think a lot of people are joining the nuns. They just say, I don't want any of those labels. I'll just be a nun. Uh, But uh, in the long run, I think uh, that those of us who are Christians or Muslims or whatever, and we want to articulate a new kind of Christianity... It's our responsibility to, to do that and not be angry, not be bitter, but to just try to do it. I do wonder if the nuns are a force for spiritual renewal, um, that if, if people might look back on this phenomenon and look at this period of time and see that as something that actually brought, brought the institutions forward. I don't know. Can I say something really cynical about that? Yeah. So. I, because I come from an evangelical background, a lot of evangelicals don't listen to anybody, but they pay attention to numbers. <laughs> and in some ways, the nuns, by voting with their feet, might be the only people who a lot of the leaders listen to. I, I hope that would be true among Catholic leaders, and I think you're exactly right. I think there is something that happens when people just say, I won't put up with this anymore. Uh, that uh, is, is a, an important part of the equation of change. Hmm. Okay, let's, let's have 10 or 15 minutes of questions. I think there are some microphones or will be. Yeah. Hi, Krista. Hi, Brian. Um, at our first Wild Goose Festival, um, a mother came up and asked you, Brian, um, about her kids and explained that... Um, you know, she'd read all your books, and it was really changing her life. And now that we're in this new place that we've been talking about, 
we don't know how to teach our children and our teenagers. And yeah. from what I recall then, you said, we're working on that. Yes. And I would love to hear now, two years later, my kids are older, and I have learned some things over the years, but I would love to hear you speak to that now a couple of years later that you've been working on it. Uh, what do well, you have to say? Well, thanks. Well, let me say two things about that. Uh, something that other people have been doing, and then I'll tell you my continuing concern about this. Uh, there are growing numbers of Christian educators who are realizing we have a problem here. What a lot of them have done is they've said, we don't have to mess around with our message. We just need slicker packaging. Uh, and, but what's happening now is that they're saying, no, we have to figure out what our message is. And we have to develop some skill in helping children understand this in age-appropriate ways. And this is a really, really big subject. Uh, for just a quick example. I, I was at a Christian publisher, and they were showing me some of their new children's materials. And they had this really cool thing on the life of David. And I said, wow, that really looks great. And then I said, what do you do about David's violence? And they looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, well, we tell kids not to throw stones. And then David goes and kills somebody with a stone. What do we do about that? And they just looked at me with this realization, we've never even thought about that. Uh, that this heroic story of David or the story of Noah and the ark, for crying out loud, it's a story of worse than genocide. It's a story of geocide. Have we dealt with that? So the good news is a lot of people are paying attention to that. But one of the things that's going to ha force us to do is have a different way of talking about the Bible before we even begin. So what I'm working on right now is a, uh, a project, a, a book that will be based on 52 sermons that, that could be read aloud in 10 minutes uh, each that give an overview from Genesis to Revelation from a new perspective. So, uh, and, and to try to be savvy about these issues and talk about, the, not avoid the violent parts of the Bible. Let's talk about them and offer a constructive way to interpret those texts. So we, I think we grown-ups have to get comfortable talking about it among ourselves, and then we'll be able to do a better job talking with the kids about it. Uh, so that's, I think it's happening. It's happening slower than we might wish, but, but in some ways faster than I expected. Hey, Brian, you're an author, activist, a preacher, speaker, travel, you're a part of the Occupy movement. You've, I mean, you do a lot. My question to you is, uh, how do you organize your, your work week? When do you read? When do you write? When do you think? Uh, who are you reading? Can well, you speak to that? That's a lot of questions. Good. Those are, that's a great question. I, w I, I wish I had a good answer for you because when you travel a lot, your life is never normal. But what I can tell you is uh, my life now is very nice balance because when I travel, I'm working full bore. And then when I'm home, I live at this little town and I can be outdoors and recharge and so on, which is very, very important. I'll just say for all the clergy here, but really for everybody, we all have to know what makes us recharge. And for me, it's, it's the outdoors. For you, it might be something else. But if you don't know what makes you recharge, boy, it's just... Take it from an older guy. You re it's really something to, to know. <laughs> you're, not, you're not that. I'm sorry. You're up here with me. You're not that old. Okay, thank well, you. You're making me feel better. Pretty close in age. So. <laughs> making me feel better. But, uh, uh, but I'll tell you how my life works. I love to write. Some people have to discipline themselves to write. I love to write. My big challenge is 
that whatever the electrons that fuel responding to emails and the electrons that involve writing are the same electrons. So I have to discipline my email, as a lot of people who are waiting for replies from me will contest, in order to make sure that I still have uh, you know, space to write. Um, one of the nice things about travel is that it's a great way to read. read. So I do a whole lot of reading when I travel. Um, and when you ask what I'm reading, it's so hard because I'm constantly reading. And then when somebody asks me, I can't remember a single thing that I've read in my entire life, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I should say I try to read fiction and poetry all the time. Um, and uh, so the last couple of years, I just keep rereading Wendell Berry. His poetry and his fiction is great. Uh, but I try to keep that going in my life all the time. And then in the world of theology... There is just absolutely no shortage of great things being written out. That's the problem. There's so much. But here's a, a piece of advice I could offer in this. If you're an American, uh, and again, I'm, I'm sort of working against my own book sales here, but I, I mean this sincerely, try to, it, try to read women and people of color and people who are not from the United States. Um, I'll just give a quick example. A few years ago, someone recommended I read a book by an African theologian because I spent a bit of time in Africa. And I read a book called uh, Theology and Identity by Kwame Bediako. And I'll just tell you, I, when I read that book, I thought, I'm not sure I've ever read a more brilliant work of any sort. It was just brilliant. And, and to think that, that there are brilliant African theologians and brilliant Latin American and Asian theologians Brilliant indigenous theology coming from indigenous people, and they don't get big book contracts, and they, they aren't popular, but boy, we all better pay attention to them. Uh, what should the goose become? <laughs> what should wild goose become? Well, let me say that I uh, am a, a huge fan of what this can become. You and mean the festival, what the festival should become? Yes, I, I believe that what we really need is a broad-based movement uh, in the best sense of the word. And I don't think it's happening yet, but I think it's the pieces are in place for I mean, I think it's beginning to happen. But I think whatever movement we need has to be, it has to cross traditional barriers that have not been crossed. And one of them is the barrier of race. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. Um, I think the wild, wild Goose has an incredibly important role to play. But by having an event that's a camping event, you tend to restrict the racial diversity. By having it in North Carolina, you, you, there are certain consequences. I don't, think, I, th I don't think anybody should criticize that. I just think anything you do has those limitations. So what I hope will happen is that we will diversify many different ways to bring people together. And we'll, instead of criticizing each other, we'll say... That's part of the movement. That's part of the movement. That's part of the movement. And I hope Wild Goose will just keep uh, uh, expanding that, uh, that conversation among everyone it can and keep welcoming more and more people. And I think after a couple of years, it's doing a great job already. You know, that's kind of a, evolving the idea of a movement, too, right? We, we have a very fixed idea of a movement from, you know, like, say, civil rights is the mm -hmm. iconic. And... I don't know that a movement will ever happen quite that way again in yeah, this world. That's right. Oh, and I, this is a little bit related to the question of whether emerging church is a movement. Yes. Um, and how do you deal with the human condition issue? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I was, in an, I was invited to an emerging church event a few years ago. 
And there were four people on the panel who'd been in the movement for a long time and all started churches. And they could not have been more different. Yes. And they'd all gone back to the fourth century and thought anew about what atonement meant and what the role of women is. Come out in really different places. And on that panel, you could, <laughs> you could see the person who was reinventing mainline Protestantism yes. and the person who was kind of reinventing the monastic movement. Yes. And the person who was maybe showing what charismatic and Pentecostal renewal was yes. going to be like. And, <laughs> and I'm not going to name names here, but the person who would be burning his enemies at the stake 50 years from now. Yes. Um, there's that issue of what, human, what, what, what we do yes, exactly. with our passions. Yes. Do you see evolution in terms of, I mean, what, what, what's a spiritual correction yes. to, knowing, to, to, a re, to that kind of reality check? Krista, that question, it seems to me, forces us to, to face two realities that are very hard to hold at the same time. And the first one is that institutions really matter. My definition of an institution is an organization that preserves the gains made by past movements. And my definition of a movement is an organization that arises to propose gains to current institutions. So to me, there are a yin and a yang there that are very important. But then you bring in this issue of the spirit, the spirit behind the thing. So, and this to me is where any movement deeply depends on the spirituality of the people who are moving. Uh, yesterday, John Deere was here talking about uh, Mahatma Gandhi and how Gandhi uh, had deep, the deep practice of reading the Sermon on the Mount every single day, reading from the Sermon hmm. on the Mount. Uh, I thought, gosh, I don't do that. But what a different world it would be if we deeply, deeply rooted ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so to me, this is, the, the spirituality of this really, really matters. If we don't become people of peace in our own heart, then we will just have another set of theological ideas about which we're violent. And that's where the spirit part of this thing is to me. And, and maybe that's where the festival comes in also, yes. these this, these deep dives into nurturing that spirit. You know, one way to define a festival is a short-term monastic experience. Mm. So we enter into a shared life uh, with some physical privation and a little bit of asceticism. Uh, and, uh, and, and, but we order our lives around things we really care. I, there's, there's a sense that this is a, a deep dive into a, a short-term monasticism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let's take a... Do we... Do we have until um, 4 or 3.55? Okay, so we'll take a couple more questions. A question of a different kind. Uh, Statistics are telling us that recently the chaplaincy in the military is becoming more fundamentalist. Uh, We are hearing fundamentalists say that they are waiting for the second coming of Christ. I, as a Lutheran pastor, have had two people tell me they've got their guns ready to take back the government, if need be. Where does this whole emerging mix of militarism, patriotism, have the possibility of causing real difficulty in the United States of America? Well, first let me say, I wouldn't have known what you were talking about if I hadn't moved to Florida a few years ago. And I hear this sort of thing all the time. Uh, and uh, uh, there is, I think, this resurgence of a racist, militarist form of Christianity 
that is far more pernicious than a lot of people realize. Uh, and I hear from people in the military saying similar things with, with deep concern about things that are going on uh, in this uh, a, a militarized armed form of, of Christian uh, warfare. Uh, to me, the big question is, what are people like us going to do about it? And I'll tell you something I, I'm working on, is I, and I hope other people will want to help, and s- help support this, but I think we need to do some organizing that, on a kind that we haven't done before. I'll tell you something I wish. I wish that we could get, start a list of people who would make a pledge of resistance so that the next time the United States goes to war, what if we had 1,000 people who said, the next time the United States goes to war, I have made a pledge that I will go and engage in civil disobedience and I'll go to jail. And once you had 1,000, maybe the second 1,000 would be easier to get. What if you had 10,000 people? What if you had 30,000 people? What if you had 100,000 people? Uh, I I bet some people here would sign up for something like that. And... uh, And to me, this becomes this big question, because if there is a Christian militancy, well, we can say it like this. I've heard so many Christians say, where are the moderate, peace-loving Muslims who stand up to the extremists? And I want to say, where are the peace-loving Christians who stand up to the extremists? Uh, That, to me, is something we really need. I should say, I, I think this will get worse. I hope it won't, but I think it will. And part of it's out of our control. There was a moment in the last presidential election, early in the Republican primary process, where I believe it was Tom Tancredo uh, from uh, Colorado was asked uh, what his uh, greatest mistake was in life. He said, it was that I didn't accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior sooner in my life. So he identified himself as an evangelical Christian. Then a question came a little later, what would you do about fundamentalist Islam? He said, I would tell the Muslim world that if they have another attack, we will drop a nuclear bomb on Medina, and then if they have another, we'll drop it on Mecca. Do you all hear what is said by, and I just remember thinking, this is a guy running for president, and people are ready to vote for him. And I think to myself, uh, this is why that silent majority, you know, Dr. King had it right, as so many people have said this, that to be silent in the face of injustice is complicity. And uh, so this is something, uh, I, I, these are hard choices we have to make. But thanks for raising that question. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, hi, Brian and Chris. Uh, uh, I think I'll speak for myself and I think for many that my life is much better by your work. Um, I want to... But I'm going, to, I'm going to raise a phrase that I don't hear you say very often, which is moral courage. And I don't hear suffering persecution for righteousness' sake. Yeah. And I think for a privileged Christian as myself and many in your audience, that might be with respect to how they make a dollar. And I think that's the real tough spot when people will say, I will suffer loss of professional standing and perhaps economic security to make a change. That's when change will happen. Yes. I just thought like your response to that. Well, I, I'm really glad you bring that up. I, I remember, remember the, the uh, BP oil spill, which we so quickly forget. And I remember while that was going on, of course, I live at the Gulf of Mexico, so we were watching that very closely. But I remember thinking, how many thousands of engineers who work for BP are Catholic and Southern Baptist and Assembly of God? How many of them ever heard their priest or pastor say, that you have an ethical responsibility in the way you do your job. 
that if you sign off on a safety report that's not legitimate, this is an evil that you, your faith should keep you from doing. You know, to me, this is one of the great ironies. We have all these arguments about what we do for 60 or 75 minutes on a Sunday morning. Uh, but what would happen if we took far more seriously the work that people do as teachers and lawyers and, uh, and parents and daycare and neighbors and police officers, and we said to be a follower of Jesus Christ affects the way you do your work in the engineering profession. You know, um, uh, when you're, if you get a degree in engineering, all the companies who want to offer you big money when you get out, who offers the biggest money? Weapons dealers. Weapons uh, companies. So what an amazing process we have of getting people catechized into the religion of militarism. Oh, my goodness, we have important work to do on this. And, and uh, uh, the great irony of this, and I think this is changing, as the previous question pointed out, the great irony of this is even 10 years ago, you would hear a lot of military chaplains be the first to say amen to that because military chaplains were the ones who saw what war did to people up close. They were the ones who wanted to make sure that the people under their care wouldn't be sent into harm's way, not only the harm of enemy weapons, but moral harm uh, from the, the moral damage that's done to a human being for taking the life of another human being or even plotting to take the life of another human being. And you very seldom hear that anymore. And this is, to me, the work of, of uh, people like us. We've got to speak up. We have to do it without vilifying anybody because, all, you know, it's so easy to vilify. But we have to at least get these issues on, on the agenda again. And, and, uh, and what that's going to mean is an awful lot of engineers who have the courage to say to their company, I'm not comfortable with us doing this. And lawyers who say, to, I'm not comfortable doing this. And there might mean a loss. But it begins with pastors who are uncomfortable saying, uh, saying some things. And there's got to be moral courage at all levels. Do you, um, is, is your experience of the emerging church that it crosses political lines? Because a, a lot of the language is, and again, I hate these yeah. labels, liberal language. Well, unfortunately, I think what's happened is that it didn't used to be liberal language to talk about justice and fairness. It didn't used to be... Lo- it used to be conservative language to say, we have to think long-term and not exploit the environment. We have to be concerned about our farmland. You, you know, this is a, I mean, a huge subject. When you think of what's happened to thousands and thousands of conservative congressional districts where people have sold their farmland to huge conglomerates and the land is worse off and the people are worse off... Fracking is doing it. Those were conservative values. And I think another one of these untold stories of our time is how the new, next generation of young evangelicals yes. is totally blurring these boundaries. Exactly. I mean, right. holding some positions, which again sound liberal and some which sound conservative, yeah. the way we define those things now, but not being predictable. I, I just hope that, 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 that this uh, old polarization between left and right, I hope it collapses. Uh, and I hope something more creative uh, emerges. Uh, it's going to be around for a while. But I, I think Jim Wallace said it very well. He said, we become paralyzed when we're polarized. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of our challenges is to flip the script and find ways we can bring people together uh, in, in fresh ways. And, and I think there are signs that that's happening. But I, I also don't want to be unrealistic. Uh, we... 
Uh, here's one of our problems. Traditional conservatives and traditional liberals both agree that the way to solve our problems is through political action. What happens when both political parties and the entire political system is owned by corporate interests? I won't name names, but if one party is controlled by military interests and by the oil industry and another party is controlled by banking interests and Wall Street, I'm just, I'm just sort of, you know, speaking theoretically, but it, um, suddenly if you're dealing with politics, you're already downstream from where the problem is. So I think we have to keep going upstream. And I have a feeling that the activism of the future is going to be an activism that focuses on economics. I, you know, I often say when I'm speaking about this that you know, there's a, a little ballot that every one of us votes with every single day, you know, and figuring out how could we organize... And that's a credit card for radio listeners. Yes. <laughs> how could we organize uh, 10 million progressive Catholics? And how could we organize millions and millions of... Uh, of younger evangelicals and, and Protestants to say part of our Christian duty is to only spend our money with companies that are going to treat the environment well and are going to treat the laborers and the migrant workers and, and all the rest. Uh, that could be the, the basis of a different kind of political action. And you're seeing the, the, to see those as spiritual priorities oh. as opposed to political matters, as, as opposed to re- restricting them to political matters. Let, let me just say, I, I moved to Florida four years ago, and I lived just down the road from a town called Immokalee, which is the center of the, uh, where, where a lot of farm workers are. In fact, the, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers is here at Wild Goose. You should all go and visit them and learn from them. And when I am with these uh, farm workers who pick the tomatoes that we all eat in the winter, and I see how, what they have suffered and what they're working for justice there is a spirituality there, a spiritual ethos and integrity there that goes far beyond what you would see in a seminary classroom. There is something about faith when it's translated into caring for the earth and caring for your neighbor and caring for the poor and caring for the stranger and the immigrant and the other. Don't you all agree? I mean, that is a spirituality that cannot be matched anywhere else. So, Brian, you're, um, we've talked about how your sense of the church has evolved across time, um, your sense of, of Christianity. I wonder if you'd just say, speak in closing about how your image of God mm. has evolved yes. across these years. Let me talk about two dimensions of that. The first is, because I'm a Christian and I'm so centered on Jesus... My, I was brought up with this idea that you have a pre-existing definition of God and to be a Christian is to lift Jesus up and fit Jesus into that pre-existing definition. What's happened to me really in the last 15 or 20 years is that I've come to say, no, Jesus does something far more radical than that. When you really encounter Jesus, you are forced to redefine God. Uh, and to me, this is a, a very hard to explain reality, but it's, it's, it's something I've experienced. Uh, so when you see Jesus in conversation with that Syrophoenician woman where he listens to her and he sees her faith, you're getting an insight into the heart of God. Uh, so that would be the first thing. But then the second thing would be this. It, I can say it. 
by way of an anecdote, I was invited to be part of this Christian-Muslim uh, dialogue a few years ago. And there were all these very learned papers presented by Christian scholars, Muslim scholars. And then there was discussion. And a, a long line of people came to the mic. And then one Muslim scholar came to the mic. And he said, we have heard brilliant lectures about the love of God and brilliant lectures about the justice of God, but no one has yet spoken of the beauty of God. And then he spoke for a few minutes about God and beauty. And I can just tell you that for those next few minutes, I forgot whether I was a Christian or a Muslim. And I think one of the things that's happening to a lot of us is that there is this vision of the beauty of God that transports us and that takes us to a new depth and a new height. Uh, and it's one of those things about beauty. You can't capture it in a word or a formula. When you get to that humble place where the beauty of God has overwhelmed you, I think it changes the way, it changes everything. You can say the same creed that you said before, but now it's not a creed that grasps God in the, in the fist of the words, but it's a creed that points up to a beauty that's beyond anybody's grasp. Okay, thank you. Brian McLaren. Thank you.